Chapter One, Part One of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart, by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter One, Part One. Some royal names are predestined to misfortune. In France, there is the name Henry. Henry the First was poisoned. Henry the Second was killed in a tournament. Henry the Third and Henry the Fourth were assassinated. As to Henry the Fifth, for whom the past is so fatal already, God alone knows what the future has in store for him. In Scotland, the unlucky name is Stuart. Robert the First, founder of the race, died at twenty-eight of a lingering illness. Robert the Second, the most fortunate of the family, was obliged to pass a part of his life not merely in retirement, but also in the dark, on account of inflammation of the eyes which made them blood-red. Robert III succumbed to grief, the death of one son and the captivity of other. James I was stabbed by Graham in the Abbey of the Black Monks of Perth. James II was killed at the siege of Roxburgh by a splinter from a burst cannon. James III was assassinated by an unknown hand in a mill, where he had taken refuge during the Battle of Sorky. James IV, wounded by two arrows and a blow from a halbard, fell amidst his nobles on the battlefield of Flodden. James V died of grief at the loss of his two sons, and of remorse for the execution of Hamilton. James VI, destined to unite on his head the two crowns of Scotland and England, son of a father who had been assassinated, led a melancholy and timorous existence between the scaffold of his mother, Mary Stuart, and that of his son, Charles I. Charles II spent a portion of his life in exile. James II died in it. The Chevalier St. George, after having been proclaimed King of Scotland as James VIII, and of England and Ireland as James III, was forced to flee, without having been able to give his arms even the lustre of a defeat. His son, Charles Edward, after the skirmish at Derby and the Battle of Culloden, hunted from mountain to mountain, pursued from rock to rock, swimming from shore to shore, picked up half-naked by a French vessel, betook himself to Florence to die there, without the European courts ever having consented to recognise him as a sovereign. Finally, his brother, Henry Benedict, the last heir of the Stuarts, having lived on a pension of three hundred pounds sterling, granted him by George III, died completely forgotten, bequeathing to the House of Hanover all the crown jewels which James II had carried off when he passed over to the continent in 1688, a tardy but complete recognition of the legitimacy of the family which had succeeded his. In the midst of this unlucky race, Mary Stuart was the favourite of misfortune. As Brantome has said of her, whomever desires to write about this illustrious Queen of Scotland has, in her, two very large subjects, the one of her life, the other of her death. Brantome had known her on one of the most mournful occasions of her life, at the moment when she was quitting France for Scotland. It was on the ninth of August, 1561, after having lost her mother and her husband in the same year, that Mary Stuart, dowager of France and Queen of Scotland at nineteen, escorted by her uncles, Cardinals Guise and Lorraine, by the Duke and Duchess of Guise, and by Duc de Aumale and Monsieur de Nemours, arrived at Calais, where two galleys were waiting to take her to Scotland, one commanded by Monsieur de Melvion, and the other by Captain Albise. She remained six days in the town. At last, on the fifteenth of the month, after the saddest adieus to her family, accompanied by Messieurs Dumal, Le Boeuf, and Danville, 
with many nobles, among whom were Brantome and Chatelard, she embarked in Monsieur Mervillon's gallery, which was immediately ordered to put out to sea, which it did with the aid of oars, there not being sufficient wind to make use of the sails. Mary Stuart was then in the full bloom of her beauty, beauty even more brilliant in its mourning garb, a beauty so wonderful that it had shed around her a charm which no one whom she wished to please could escape, and which was fatal to almost every one. About this time, too, some one made her the subject of a song which, as even her rivals confessed, contained no more than the truth. It was, so it was said, by Monsieur de Maisonfleur, a cavalier equally accomplished in arms and letters. Here it is. In robes of whiteness, lo, full sad and mournfully, went pacing to and fro beauty's divinity. A shaft in hand she bore from Cupid's cruel store, and he who fluttered round, bore, o'er his blindfold eyes, and o'er his head uncrowned, a veil of mournful guise, whereon the words were wrought, you perish or are caught. Yet at this moment Mary Stuart, in her deep mourning of white, was more lovely than ever, for great tears were trickling down her cheeks as, waving a handkerchief standing on the quarter-deck, she who was so grieved to set out, bowed farewell to those who were so grieved to remain. At last, in half an hour's time, the harbour was left behind, the vessel was out at sea. Suddenly Mary heard loud cries behind her, a boat coming in under press of sail, through her pilot's ignorance, had struck upon a rock in such a manner that it was split open, and after having trembled and groaned for a moment like some one wounded, began to be swallowed up, amid the terrified screams of all the crew. Mary, horror-stricken, pale, dumb, and motionless, watched her gradually sink, while her unfortunate crew, as the keel disappeared, climbed into the yards and shrouds, to delay their death agony a few minutes. Finally, keel, yards, masts, all were engulfed in the ocean's gaping jaws. For a moment there remained some black specks, which in turn disappeared one after another. Then, wave followed upon wave, and the spectres of this horrible tragedy, seeing the sea calm and solitary as if nothing had happened, asked themselves if it was not a vision that had appeared to them and vanished. "'Alas!' cried Mary, falling on a seat and leaning both arms on the vessel's stern. "'What a sad omen for a such a sad voyage!' Then once more fixing on the receding harbour her eyes, dried for a moment by terror, and beginning to moisten anew. Adieu, France, she murmured, adieu, France. And for five hours she remained thus, weeping and murmuring, adieu, France, adieu, France. Darkness fell while she was still lamenting, and then, as the view was blotted out, and she was summoned to supper. It is indeed now, dear France, said she, rising, that I really lose you, since jealous night heaps morning upon morning, casting a black veil before my sight. Adieu, then, one last time, dear France, for never shall I see you more. With these words she went below, saying that she was the very opposite of Dido, who, after departure of Aeneas, had done nothing but look at the waves, while she, Mary, could not take her eyes off the land. Then everyone gathered round her to try to divert and console her, but she, growing sadder and not being able to respond, so overcome was she with tears, could hardly eat, and, having had her bed got ready on the stern deck, she sent for the steersman and ordered him, if he still saw land at daybreak, to come and wake her immediately. On this point Mary was favoured, for the wind having dropped, when daybreak came the vessel was still within sight of France. It was a great joy when, awakened by the steersman, who had not forgotten the order he had received, 
Mary raised herself on her couch, and through the window that she had had opened, saw once more the beloved shore. But at five o'clock in the morning, the wind having freshened, the vessel rapidly drew farther away, so that soon the land completely disappeared. Then Mary fell back upon her bed, pale as death, murmuring yet once again, Adieu, France, I shall see thee no more. Indeed, the happiest years of her life had just passed away in this France that she so much regretted. Born amid the first religious troubles, near the bedside of her dying father, the cradle mourning was to stretch for her to the grave, and her stay in France had been a ray of sunshine in her night. Slandered from her birth, the report was so generally spread abroad that she was malformed, and that she could not live to grow up, that one day her mother, Mary of Guise, tired of these false rumours, undressed her and showed her naked to the English ambassador who had come on the part of Henry the Eighth to ask her in marriage for the Prince of Wales, himself only five years old. Crowned at nine months by Cardinal Beaton, Archbishop of St. Andrews, she was immediately hidden by her mother. He was afraid of treacherous dealing in the King of England, in Stirling Castle. Two years later, not finding even this fortress safe enough, she removed her to an island in the middle of the Lake of Mentheith, where a priory, the only building in the place, provided an asylum for the royal child and for four young girls born in the same year as herself, having like her the sweet name which is an anagram of the word Amur, and who, quitting her neither in her good nor in her evil fortune, were called the Queen's Marys. They were Mary Livingston, Mary Fleming, Mary Satan, and Mary Beaton. Mary stayed in this priory till Parliament, having approved her marriage with the French Dauphin, son of Henry II, she was taken to Dumbarton Castle to wait the moment of departure. There she was entrusted to Monsieur de Brise, sent by Henry II to fetch her. Having set out in the French galleys anchored at the mouth of Clyde, Mary, after having been hotly pursued by the English fleet, entered Brest Harbour, 15th of August, 1548, one year after the death of Francis. Besides the Queen's four Marys, the vessels also brought to France three of her natural brothers, among whom was the prior of St. Andrews, James Stuart, who was later to abjure the Catholic faith, and with the title of regent, and under the name of the Earl of Murray, to become so fatal to poor Mary. From Brest, Mary went to Saint-Germain-en-Laye, where Henry II, who had just ascended the throne, overwhelmed her with caresses, and then sent her to a convent where the heiresses of the noblest French houses were brought up. There Mary's happy qualities developed. Born with a woman's heart and a man's head, Mary not only acquired all the accomplishments which constituted the education of a future queen, but also that real knowledge which is the object of the truly learned. Thus, at fourteen, in the Louvre, before Henry II, Catherine de Medici, and the whole court, she delivered a discourse in Latin of her own composition, in which she maintained that it becomes a woman to cultivate letters, and that it is unjust and tyrannical to deprive flowery of their perfumes, by banishing young girls from all but domestic cares. One can imagine in what manner a future queen, sustaining such a thesis, was likely to be welcomed in the most lettered and pedantic court in Europe. Between the literature of Rabelais and Marot, verging on their decline, and that of Ronsard and Montaigne, reaching their zenith, Mary became a queen of poetry, only too happy never to have to wear another crown than that which Ronsard du Bellay, Maison Fleur, and Brantome placed daily on her head, but she was predestined. 
in the midst of those fates which a waning chivalry was trying to revive came the final joust of tunel henry the second struck by a splinter of a lance for want of a visa slept before his time with his ancestors and mary stuart ascended the throne of france where from mourning for henry she passed to that for her mother and from mourning for her mother to that for her husband mary felt this last loss both as woman and as poet her heart burst forth into bitter tears and plaintive harmonies here are some lines that she composed at this time into my song of woe sung to a low sad air my cruel grief i throw for loss beyond compare in bitter sighs and tears go by my fairest years was ever grief like mine imposed by destiny did ever lady pine in high estate like me of whom both heart and eye within the coffin lie who in the tender spring and blossom of my youth taste all the sorrowing of life's extremest ruth and take delight in naught save in regretful thought all that was sweet and gay is now a pain to see the sunniest of day is black as night to me all that was my delight is hidden from my sight my heart and i indeed one face one image know the which this mournful weed on my sad face doth show dyed with the violet's tone that is the lover's own tormented by my ill i go from place to place but wonder as i will mine woes can naught efface my most of bad and good i find in solitude but wheresoe'er i stay in meadow or in copse whether at break of day or when the twilight drops my heart goes sighing on desiring one that's gone if sometimes to the skies my weary gaze i lift his gently shining eyes look from the cloudy drift or stooping o'er the wave i see him in the grave or when my bed i seek and sleep begins to steal again i hear him speak again his touch i feel in work or leisure he is ever near to me no other thing i see however fair displayed by which my heart will be a tributary made not having the perfection of that my lost affection he make an end my verse of this thy sad lament whose burden shall rehearse pure love of true intent which separation's stress will never render less it was then says brantome that it was delightful to see her for the whiteness of her countenance and of her veil contended together but finally the artificial white yielded and the snow-like pallor of her face vanquished the other for it was thus he adds that from the moment she became a widow i always saw her with her pale hue as long as i had the honour of seeing her in france and scotland where she had to go in eighteen months time to her very great regret after her widowhood to pacify her kingdom greatly divided by religious troubles alas she had neither the wish nor the will for it and i have often heard her say so with a fear of this journey like death for she preferred a hundred times to dwell in france as a dowager queen and to contend herself with touraine and Bito for her jointure and to go and reign over there in her wild country but her uncles at least some of them not all advised her and even urged her to it and deeply repented their error mary was obedient as we have seen 
and she began her journey under such auspices that when she lost sight of land she was like to die. Then it was that the poetry of her soul found expression in these famous lines. Farewell, delightful land of France, my motherland, the best beloved, foster nurse of my young years. Farewell, France, and farewell, my happy days. The ship that separates our love has borne away but half of me. One part is left thee and is throw, and I confide it to thy tenderness, that thou mayst hold in mind the other part. Translator's Note It has not been found possible to make a rhymed version of these lines without sacrificing the simplicity which is their chief charm. This part of herself that Mary left in France was the body of the young king, who had taken with him all poor Mary's happiness in his tomb. End of chapter 1 Part 1